walks on the streets. We must make an example, or France will fall. What would you do if this assignment of defense was transferred to you? Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifstecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by a fellow historian and today's resident guest expert on modern French history, Miranda Sachs. Miranda, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, about why you agreed to come on today to talk about Ridley Scott's Napoleon? Yeah, so I'm really excited to be here. I'm a historian of 19th and 20th century France. I primarily work on the history of childhood, and I have a book that came out recently called An Age to Work. Um, I've heard about Sarah's podcast a long time. We've known each other since we first basically got to grad school, but, you know, I haven't had a lot of any occasion so far to be on this podcast, except Sarah very kindly decided that she was going to expand her chronology in this exceptional case to talk about this film. Yes, my my hatred of Ridley Scott knows no chronological boundaries is really what was going on here in particular. <laughs> and I very much you joining me to uh, share your expertise because it is really beyond the point where I feel like I have much expertise of my own. Yeah. And I mean, when I first started being a French historian, I was very much a Napoleon fangirl. Um, I actually have a Napoleon figurine that I did not buy. Somebody bought for me that's on my shelf next to me. Um, but as I've studied French history, I've come to realize that Napoleon is a very nuanced person. Um, and there's been a lot of really interesting work recently mm-hmm. about Napoleon and the legacies of slavery. So I do think mm-hmm. that this movie maybe can help us sort of think about some of those questions that yeah. recent scholarship is engaging with in the film does not engage with at all. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited to have that conversation because I I honestly I'm not even sure that I have an answer to the question whether the film is like Napoleon fanboy or the opposite. Hmm. In a way that I personally struggled with. Yeah, and we can talk about this sort of in the longer discussion. Yeah, particularly in regards to the French Revolution and how it sets up Napoleon relationship to the French Revolution. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, so we are today talking about Napoleon, uh, directed by Ridley Scott, released in 2023. Uh, I saw this movie in theaters. We are actually recording this soon enough that I think one would have had to have seen this movie in theaters. I actually saw this with uh, my department, essentially. So uh, several... Uh, of the faculty in uh, in my department decided uh, that we would go, like take students to go and see it, and uh, we ended up having the theater to ourselves and like kind of heckled. Okay, that sounds like a great experience, though. Yeah, I assume you also saw this in theaters. Yes, I did go to theaters to see this. I think the second weekend it came out, it turned out that everybody else in my department went and watched it the first weekend. And I mean, like a lot of people in my department went and watched them the first weekend, none of whom were French historians. So that pushed me to to go out and see it. Yeah, I should have invited you to come and heckle with them. (laughs) So yeah, so this stars Joaquin Phoenix as Napoleon. 
And even though I usually try to kind of get into some of the details of the film first and some of the inaccuracies later, I do just want to speak briefly to some of the casting choices in terms of the actor's ages. So first of all, Joaquin Phoenix is 49. At the beginning of the movie, he is supposed to be 23 years old. Mm-hmm. He looks world weary and 49 at no point did they intend to make him look younger definitely yeah and then there's really no aging like you just continue the same age throughout the entire film i mean thank god with him because if they made him age from the age he is at the beginning of the movie it would have been like to crap it at the end um and then vanessa kirby is uh playing josephine She's 35 years old. Josephine is supposed to be about six years older than Napoleon. So, of course, they chose an actress who is 14 years younger than Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting choice there. And also does not age, as far as we can tell. No, which is also, like, very funny. Because when, spoiler alert, they kill her off, it's like, oh, no, at the, uh, like, ripe old age of 35, it is time for her to die. <laughs> But yeah, it's they also don't make an attempt to to age her at all. They don't make any attempt to change the fact that like very, very obviously like the age difference between them he is like and that he is older than her like that is that is noticeable in the film. And like also like, you know, nothing against a 15 year age difference, but it feels like a sign that Ridley Scott cannot possibly cast a woman who is over like over 35 kind of strikes me as what's going on potentially in terms of like the choice to like switch that age difference in that dramatic way like I can see that but I also think it just disrupts the power dynamic right it's it's oh, yeah. casting an older woman but the power mm-hmm. dynamic between the two of them as an older more experienced woman and kind of a younger more ingenue man and the result is yeah. then you have a Napoleon who's kind of weird and awkward because she has yes. to be more at ease when in reality he was perhaps just younger and less sexually yeah. experienced and less you know aristocratic less adept mm-hmm. um yeah, and so at the beginning, she does have a power. She should have sort of this power over him because she has this experience. Yeah. And instead, that kind of breaks down. And I think that, for me, was sort of definitely a weak spot. Yeah, so it for me, I, I agree that it for me, it definitely felt like it was not, because of that, a successful depiction of what I know, at least, about their relationship. Yeah, and, and also it just did, like, feel very much like... I, I have very strong feelings about how Ridley Scott in general, um, I think, kind of doesn't like women very much Hmm. um, is the vibe I have in many of his films, especially his historical epics. I have that sense in general from a lot of things in this film, in particular, the fact that like, it's one of those films where like, God forbid we like have, you know, too many women in it. That would be very upsetting. But also it does kind of strike me as like, well, if we're casting somebody who's 49, we couldn't possibly find a woman who's, you know, even that age, we couldn't possibly find her attractive. Yeah, I think it would, it maybe would have been more, like, better for the film to have a younger man who could have played 20, yeah. 40 convincingly. I think that's part of it. I think Joaquin Phoenix yeah. is a good actor. I don't know if he really mm-hmm. works for this part. And then, I mean, yeah. to talk about, like, another female character who's also I see on your list of actresses the woman who plays the mom you know the mom is kind of a matriarch she would be an Mm -hmm. interesting character in the film 
she's sort of reduced to a schemer who they talk about a yeah. lot. It really only shows up, I think, in the final third, final half. Yeah. Yeah, I found that really disappointing too. Cause yeah, like they kept referencing her, but when she actually shows up, she really they don't give her much to do except for being sort of a third party to one of the many uncomfortable sex scenes in this movie. <gasps> yes, yes, yes. I'm right about that. Yeah. But you know, Sinead Cusack, uh, yeah, plays plays her. Um I'll also note, so okay, my other comment that I'm going to make is a kind of general comment with the uh with the casting is that this movie has an immense amount of people who like their names are mentioned once or flash across the screen once or in some cases aren't mentioned at all but are referred to in the credits and these are all people who genuinely like you could have a as far as I can tell right you can like have a long discussion about all of those individuals and they are very interesting but none of them come off as particularly interesting in this film Right. Well, so, you know, with someone like Bahaz, or I think mm-hmm. Talleyrand or Siez, they say who they are. There's like a little, mm-hmm. thing, but that's not consistent. There are other people who they don't tell you who they are. Right. For example, Napoleon had quite a few brothers. The brothers float in and out. There's no effort to ever introduce them. There are other figures who I hadn't really heard of who are given, you know, a, a title name. So I did think that was very arbitrary. Um, and I was a little curious, you know, who got their name listed and who didn't. Yeah, I also will note, so when I was looking just at the credits of the cast and the casting, uh, there's an actor, Abu Bakr Salim, who is described as playing uh, General Dumas. So this is, you know, the the novelist Alexandre Dumas' father, who is also like a really interesting person and is also then the, you know, only Black character really in the film. And it really to me felt a little bit like a kind of slightly icky, like, look, we have diversity without actually doing anything with that to like just have him kind of like briefly be on the screen like wearing a hat designating that he's probably somebody important but not actually give him I th- I'm not sure he even had any lines and he certainly didn't like do anything really yeah I, I can't remember him speaking I do remember him sort of in the background when they're in Egypt but he was Napoleonic general this is someone yeah. if you're listening and you're thinking about who I should be reading more about Dumas' father was mixed race. He was the son of a slave and this, um, a slaveholder, a female slave, and definitely someone worth looking into. And also, Alexandre Dumas himself was a quarter um, of Black, of uh, mm-hmm. African heritage, but was one of the most successful uh, French writers in the 19th century. So that's someone, if you're interested, sidebar, go read more about. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've, I've talked about Dumas the novelist a couple of times on this podcast, uh, just by virtue of the fact that like the Three Musketeers adaptations like kind of shade a little bit into uh, what I considered previously to be an acceptable chronology for this podcast. So I've mm-hmm. actually covered some of those. Um, so I've kind of mentioned him a little bit. But uh, but yeah, but also, yeah, all like really interesting people who and yeah, there's yeah, in general, just that there's a lot of interesting people that don't really get much space in this film. The last person I was going to mention actor-wise is uh, Rupert Everett as the Duke of Wellington, just because I feel like Rupert Everett is is certainly always good, at least. Um, For sure, yeah. Um, But again, I think Liston maybe fourth or fifth build, and he doesn't show up until the last 45 minutes, if not last half hour. I was a little confused by his very high billing, except he's probably one of the most famous actors in the movie. 
Yeah, I assume that's it because he's really, I would say, the only person who, like, who I kind of knew by name in the film, other than like the two the two leads of Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby. Yeah, fair. I mean, another thing that's interesting, and we can get into this more in terms of accents, but Rupert Everett has the correct accent for the Duke of Wellington, which is the exception rather than the rule. Um, yes. This movie. Yeah. Yeah, I would describe this film in general as mostly just having a kind of blithe disregard for accents. I mean, it seems like the majority of people just are going with whatever happens to be their natural accent. And while I do think it's silly when you have the thing that I sometimes see in historical or just everybody who's in like non-American past is vaguely British. Yeah. Or, you know, to, to refer to a Ridley Scott movie, um, House of Gucci, right? People, Americans putting on, or Americans and British people putting on terrible European accents. I think that would have been worse, but yeah. we lose the nuance a little because Napoleon and Josephine both would have spoken French with accents. She was from the Caribbean, mm. he was from Corsica. Um, so they that was something they had in common. Um, and the fact that Rupert Everett is speaking with a British accent, but so too are the French, you know, that right. confuses, you know, who belongs to which country in a way that, if you watch most European historical movies, they do try to cast actors who are from the place mm-hmm. and speak English with an accent, yeah. like French with a German accent or something like that. Yeah, and I think that would have been more interesting to to kind of have those like those elements as a way to kind of think about some of the like cultural like divides in some ways between the characters and yeah, another kind of interesting nuance that I think the film was uh, not interested in. For sure. The the nuance is definitely lacking, and that's just another example of how it gets undermined. Yeah. So at this point, we can get into the, uh, the enumeratio, or recap, section, where, okay, typically I do a kind of traditional plot summary where I sort of just go through the main events of the film. I kind of don't want to do that, because I think if you actually do that for this film, it comes off as sort of a list of battles. At it's some also point, a very long film. It's also a very long film, which has not necessarily stopped mm-hmm. before stopped uh, stopped me before. But mm-hmm. I think maybe we'll talk kind of more generally about the events. Um, but we do open with uh, with the French Revolution context, essentially, right? That we have this uh, this opening crawl, and I will say it is uh, it is a shame that I watched this in theaters because it meant I could not like pause and take notes on the opening crawl, which I often do because I find opening mm. crawl choices interesting. But if I recall, it is fairly negative on the French Revolution. Yes, that was the first thing that struck me. They described the French Revolution as anti-royalist. And mm-hmm. that told me from the beginning that this was going to be a pretty reactionary movie because there's a lot uh-huh. of things you can describe the, the revolutionaries are. Sure, they were anti-royalist, but they're also revolutionaries, right? They're trying right. to overthrow an authoritarian government. Yeah, and the phrasing also, I'm as I said, I don't remember the exact details, unfortunately, but it also was very emphatic about immediately going from it was something like they, you know, like were trying to alleviate their misery and then caused misery or something like that. And like not obviously saying like, yay, you know, what was traditionally referred to as the reign of terror, but also like it struck me also as a kind of reactionary choice to kind of immediately be like, look, actually, like all of the impacts of the French Revolution are immediately. 
Yeah, that's a very kind of old school kind of British response to the French Revolution mm -hmm. to say that the French Revolution is just the reign of terror. And this is where I think the film create like kind of backs itself into a corner and makes it so that Napoleon can only be a general and a brute, right? Because if mm -hmm. the very classic essay question is, does Napoleon, you know, betray the French Revolution or does he expand it? But if the French Revolution mm -hmm. is only the terror, there's not a lot of places you can go. The French Revolution establishes equality before the law. It gets mm -hmm. rid of a lot of problems with the old regime and eventually by 1794 becomes a terror but in 1789 1790 1791 mm -hmm. they're really thinking about making it into a constitutional monarchy and some of those yeah. things are there from the beginning mm -hmm. and to reduce the french revolution to anti-royalists and then the beheading of marie antoinette and then the terror yeah. really condenses it into a very negative thing yeah, that is definitely mm. what this film is doing. Yeah. And yeah, even even as somebody who is like very far from an expert on this period, yeah. it is like very, very clear to me that that is like the move that is being made, which like I can't say I was surprised by, but it is unfortunate. We watched Marie Antoinette get guillotined. Very quickly. Very, very quickly. And then there's a battle. We go off. There's a battle that... To me, it was not the most famous Napoleonic battle. It's in Toulon in the south of France. Mm -hmm. You know, we see a battle, whatever. Napoleon is really good. Um, and he's very good at cannons. And this is something that I think the film hints at, but doesn't say explicitly. Napoleon was an artillery general, and that's why he's always using uh -huh. cannons. Um, right. Yeah. And there's a lot of him, like, like putting his, finger in his fingers in his ears when he fires <laughs> cannons and training his soldiers to do likewise. <laughs> yes, that's yeah and I do think that's at least like hinted at right what I will say what I didn't get from the vast majority of the film hmm. is that I the film weirdly is very interested in showing battles but didn't seem really interested in showing us much about Napoleon's strategy because my understanding is that sort of the point of Napoleon is that he is a brilliant military strategist right. and that was not particularly like apparent to me in any meaningful way as somebody watching this movie. Yeah. I mean, he does sort of trick various armies at various points, but the sort of big picture, he was very good at kind of seeing the whole battle. He kind of visioned in his mm -hmm. mind, you know, imagine this is a time before computers. You're really just kind of looking at these giant maps and then people are set loose and you can't really communicate with them. And he mm -hmm. could kind of envision all of it and see how it would work. And I mean, I think that's a little hard to capture. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is that is fair that it would have been difficult to show. But it was, nevertheless, I felt like sort of disappointed. Okay. As somebody who's not like a big military history person, to be honest, and also, I mean, we're both social historians. <laughs> um, and also not necessarily a like massive like battles in movies person. I do think that they could have maybe I'm not sure how to do it like you know I'm not a filmmaker but I do think they could have like done something to at least like distinguish the battles from each other in some ways a little bit more than I felt like they actually did and how many battles are there there is to the Toulon at the beginning there's in Egypt you kind of see it but not really the battle of the pyramids there's also shooting yeah. at the pyramids. The pyramids. Austerlitz is Napoleon's kind of biggest battle, and they devote right. a lot of time to it. Briefly, some of the Russian campaign, and then finally Waterloo. So there's maybe like yeah. five battles they show, um, and a couple of them make quite 
vivid detail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we also then have his uh, relationship with Josephine coming up, um, which we've already obviously touched on a little bit. And it's weirdly represented as the kind of heart of the film, but in a way that strikes me as odd. First of all, because as we've already talked about, the, the power dynamic feels really changed it seems like they kind of try to reproduce it by making Napoleon awkward and Josephine kind of a bitch. Or just very sexually comfortable. She pulls up her dress. People of a certain social status in that time, there, there was this attention to, to Lewis, you know? Yeah, so that's, it was just utterly bizarre. And in general, I would say the sex scenes are intensely unappealing throughout this movie, uh, which I'm going to say more about in a moment. But the um, other thing that I wanted to say about the, uh, the kind of initial stuff with Josephine is that I don't know how you felt. I felt like these two actors had zero chemistry. Yeah. I think, I don't know if it's just the way that it was depicted or yeah, but I don't think, there was very much chemistry and I wonder if they're trying to make a point about Josephine and Napoleon, but yeah, there was, there was not a lot of, I don't know what certain something. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a film that I feel like really, I mean, and this is the thing too, right. And the other problem with, uh, with changing the age difference is mm-hmm. that they don't have chemistry. They don't seem to have therefore a particularly close like connection and there's not really much interesting about their relationship And they also, as I said, don't really seem like they have a particularly good time in bed together. I mean, he he might, she doesn't seem like she ever does. So I'm never actually clear as to why the film eventually kind of transitions toward her seeming to like him. And the only reason I gather from the film that he has any real interest in her really then comes off as just very pretty. Yeah, and Josephine was a great beauty, and that was definitely mm-hmm. one of the attractions for him. But yeah, there I mean, if this is supposed to be a great love story, it didn't really feel like a great love story. It felt very awkward. No. It felt very conflictual, you know. Yeah. So we also have relatively early, right? So he's uh he's often in Egypt and shooting at the pyramids um is the choice that they make for how to indicate that Napoleon's in Egypt, which Jerry can touch on more later. And she then immediately, like basically the second he's out the door, in fact, like basically at their like wedding dinner is already very obviously making eyes at some guy um, starts this affair. Essentially the second he is gone. Right. And then he like runs, leaves Egypt immediately to come back, you know, because he's worried about her, which perhaps that was one of the factors, but there was also the fact mm-hmm. that the Egyptian campaign was a disaster, that the British Navy had destroyed the French Navy at the Battle of Trafalgar, which, you know, we don't see. Mm-hmm. And I understand they can't show all of the battles, but there are often other factors that drive particular offense yeah. um, in this movie. And there's one in particular that really pisses me off. Um, but yeah, sort of external factors that drive events that are totally removed. Mm-hmm. but yeah and so then he 
he comes home. Um, the the film also right like at some point it oh it uh, it does indicate briefly. I I find it telling that it has this heavy emphasis on this affair she's having. It briefly references the fact that he's had an affair affairs, but does not like dwell on them or discuss them at all, which really feels like the film is making a choice that like he's just a regular guy and she's being portrayed as like and you know speaking as what the film is saying obviously not what i think like she's being basically portrayed as being a slut like that's what struck me as like behind that particular choice also he then as he you know comes home and they have this kind of like dramatic like state of our relationship set of conversations uh he has the the charming line when she asks if the people he had affairs were prettier than her he responds they cried less that made them more attractive <sighs> God. Yeah, I forgot about that. That is pretty cringe. Yeah. And then there's also this like weird, like he makes her say like, you're nothing without me. And then she makes him say you're nothing without me. And you're a brute. And like, all I'm really getting is that these are two people who don't like each other, who have a deeply toxic relationship. I mean, in some ways that feels very 2023, right? There's that movie, Diviner. Where, you know, not just by the end of it, but that there is sort of a dynamic that works out that's a little bit like that. So perhaps, you know, there's an attempt to recreate some of these dynamics. Yeah, which, which again, seems, I think is right, right? That it's more of an interest in, like, what kinds of relationships do we depict in 2023 versus anything that necessarily reflects the reality of this, like, actual relationship between two real people. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, There are two things that are historically accurate about this period in the movie. One is that when Napoleon goes to Egypt, that is when he cuts his hair. If you look at young Napoleon, his shoulder length hair. When he comes back from Egypt, he has sort of this like Roman looking hair. So that is accurate. Um, And the second thing, we're about to talk about how they have the coup and overthrow the directory. Right. It's true that the directory did wear red togas. So those two um, production um, things are correct. And overall, I will say they did a very nice job with the um, costumes and production and all of that. So and that's, you know, one one thing in there. And there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I actually thought it was interesting that like I was sort of looking at like some pictures of Josephine and her dresses seemed like they also were like relatively close. But yeah, so we have uh, so we have this uh, this coup that takes place. Did you have any other additional thoughts on the uh, the coup and the directorate? Yeah, I mean, the coup was not totally wrong the way they did it. The whole thing with his brother pointing the sword at him and saying, you know, if mm-hmm. my brother commits tyranny, I'll commit fat fratricide. That is true. Um, mm-hmm. The way they staged it was perhaps a little more dramatic. Um, but he did yeah. overthrow the directory. However, once he overthrew the directory, they had a plebiscite. What that meant is that should Napoleon plus Sayez plus the other guy who I think Tally ran, should they be, you know, counseled? They, mm-hmm. you know, there's universal manhood suffrage for all of these Napoleonic plebiscites and people vote, yes, mm-hmm. we want them. Obviously, this is not like a free choice. It is very much kind of overthrowing of the directory, but there are some more things that happen um, beyond this coup. Yeah. So in general, I will say my feeling about like most of this initial part of the movie, including like, you know, the kind of like skipping over that before that, like I think we kind of skipped over, right? But the kind of very brief, like skipping over um, like the execution of Robespierre, which uh, which also I love that they have like Robespierre was what, like in his 30s when they died and they chose an actor who was like 
that guy looked like he was 70 if he was a day. Yeah, I'm sure that was off. Something that is accurate about that, Robespierre did shoot himself in the jaw, although it wasn't immediately. He ran away somewhere else in the course of the day. He shot himself in the jaw. You can go see the final letter he wrote. It has his blood on it. Oh, that's interesting. But yeah, but like all of these events at this stage of the film, as we're kind of like leading up to Napoleon eventually being, uh, you know, being like crowned emperor, they all strike me as things that if you didn't have a basic knowledge of the events of this period, it would all be borderline incomprehensible. But at Mm. the same time, I'm not sure having like there's like a cutoff at which if you have too much knowledge, then I'm sure they're just annoying. Right. Yeah. A lot of things happen very quickly. Um, and I think in some ways it's sort of hard to follow because there are two plot lines, you know, the New York Times about this, there's the love story and then there's the political military story and they kind of exist separately from each other. Um, but you're sort of jumping between the two and then jumping forward. Yeah. And I definitely kind of felt like, you know, as somebody who like knows the basic narrative, but is not an expert, like I felt like I was kind of filling in a lot of details that the film wasn't giving me. Like that, I think were kind of necessary to like make the political story comprehensible. And I think if you like, I don't know how many people there are who would watch this who didn't have at least a kind of basic knowledge of like the French Revolution and Napoleon. But I think if anyone who was in that situation watched this movie, I think they would have no idea what was going on for the first like third of the movie. Yeah. And again, like, because if you don't know what you learn about the French Revolution is very, is, you know, very rudimentary. And then to go to this part about him being emperor between the part where he's the council and the part where he's the emperor, he passes the Napoleonic code. And that is totally absent. This is one of the major critiques have of this film is Napoleon sets the legal code for France. The old regime has a very like unclear, messy and Napoleon creates a very modern Legal code. He creates the system that France is governed by today. The French Revolution divides France into um, departments, and Napoleon creates the position of a prefect, which still exists today. Right? All of this kind of construction of a modern bureaucracy and a modern mm-hmm. state is not something an idiot would do. Right? And someone right. smart to take out of the French Revolution. All of that is gone in this film. Yeah, like really, really all he is, is a general, right? Like we don't really have any sense of him having any other meaningful form of like, leadership or innovation or anything like that. Not at all. No. We, uh, so yes, he is a, he is crowned emperor. He's very dramatic about it. Uh, I will say the the visuals of it, like uh, very clearly are coming from that, uh, that Jacques-Louis David painting. So at least like, at least they very clearly like took the material and visual culture elements from uh, from something that kind of makes sense. Yeah, and in fact, you see him at the end of the scene painting it, which I yeah. appreciate. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was a uh, yeah. So I, I thought I actually did think that was a cool touch, and I thought in general, like I I am actually like that was probably the thing I liked best is that I am kind of like a sucker for um, like obvious references to paintings that I that I that I am familiar with. So. Uh, so I did actually think that was cool. We have the Battle of Austerlitz. Everybody's very dramatic at the Battle of Austerlitz. Yeah, and that is, I think, though it was sort of of the battle scenes, one of the ones that goes on the longest. It's pretty gratuitous. Yeah. You know, you have people drowning in a lake. One thing I will say about the battles is like early 19th century, late 18th century battles are not pleasant, right? They're very mm-hmm. close. They're very personal. You're, you know, sticking your bayonet into someone. And I do think they kept 
for some of that. I know there are some critiques about it, but the sort of messiness and ugliness of this, this era, I do think, mm-hmm. this, I think the Waterloo one does a little better, but this one does mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that actually does, that does make sense, make sense to me. So then we get back, unfortunately, <laughs> to Napoleon and his situation with Josephine. Uh, she she has two children from her previous marriage, but uh, she and Napoleon have not had children together. We have a series of, at this point, like intensely unpleasant sex scenes. At mm. one, he try one he tries to get her in the move in the mood by imitating a horse. Yeah. Yeah. At least that's what I think he's doing. He's kind of making like weird chuffing noises. Um. I genuinely, and this is where I was actually kind of trying to, I was kind of like, there are moments, right, where it seems like the film is maybe kind of like glorifying Napoleon, or at least has a sort of like great meta history. And then there are these scenes where, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is just like my perspective as a woman and maybe like a man making this movie had a different perspective, but like me watching this movie, I'm like, he is intensely unappealing. She looks intensely disinterested and does not seem to be enjoying their sexual encounters really even the slightest and so i'm kind of sitting there kind of trying to figure out why ridley scott despite decided to make a napoleon movie where it seems like a quarter of the point of the movie is like napoleon is a man who has like never made a woman come before um (laughs) it's just it's utterly bizarre so I've read in a couple pieces that Ridley Scott thought that Josephine was his Achilles heel. And you can argue, right, him running home from Egypt. But do you think also the way he's behaving is supposed to demonstrate this Achilles heel quality somehow? Maybe that he's this, like, quote, great man, but who is, like, reduced to this pathetic being um, around this around this woman. <laughs> Yeah, which also seems like weirdly misogynist uh, in its own way, which, which again, doesn't surprise me because I think all of Ridley Scott's movies are weirdly misogynist pretty much. So I will say one of my students said that there are scenes in this where it seems like Joaquin Phoenix is playing the Joker. And those are the yes. scenes yeah, where I think that really comes out. Yeah. They're also, I will say, like, uh, again, unfortunately, the downside of having seen this in theaters is that I could not like take notes in the way I normally take notes. But there's a lot of like weird quips throughout this movie that kind of made me think this movie would have like real potential if you cut it down to like a 90 minute like dark comedy about <laughs> Napoleon. <laughs> yeah, but it also just like tonally given that it's not a 90 minute dark comedy about Napoleon tonally often felt so weird and out of place. Yeah, more Rupert Everett. Yeah, you get rid of a lot of this. You just put Rupert Everett. That would be very funny. Yeah, yeah. Napoleon's mother and her, like, the brief appearance of Napoleon's mother is essentially that she shows up basically to take charge of the fact that Josephine problematically is not birthing him an heir and has him impregnate, like, some 18 year old that he like that she like pops in a bedroom at a party and sends him to. Yeah. Which then proves that the infertility is obviously her fault, not his fault. And then she yeah. is shipped off and he marries Marie Louise. Yes. And they have a son. And then we have the like 
uncomfortable scene of Josephine like being of like him like shoving his baby at Josephine basically yeah very very odd fun fact about Malmaison where Malmaison where Josephine went off to she only cut the grass twice a year because she liked to have it kind of long and wild the sort of um Mm. romantic with a capital R the the art style of the era was very Mm. like natural gardens so she wanted her yeah we don't see that that's okay no uh the divorce scene is also uh also like there's like so many of the scenes between napoleon and josephine are just intensely uncomfortable and like so it's hard to say this is the worst because there are so many of them are so bad but like the fact that like during the divorce she's like hesitant while she's like reading the like her her piece of it and then he slaps her yeah i mean this lab didn't happen apparently a lot of what they say though is taken from text that they did say at the time so there is an attempt right to to keep the words if not the tone of the moment right yeah and i and i did think that that was interesting and like and also that like from from what i was reading it seemed like there is like a sense from reading the like their real letters that like she is not as into him as he is into her which you also like get i would say overall in the film and so there are like interesting sort of elements with that but yeah but that like this like slap was just like really like unnecessary like especially because it didn't happen it just felt very unnecessarily uncomfortable and and again it felt like i don't know have we not had enough women being abused on screen yet because like you know all we've had thus far is like marie antoinette getting executed and since then we haven't had a single episode of like violence against women if you don't count napoleon's like horse sex scenes so like it's yeah it just felt extremely gratuitous yeah just but also again kind of napoleon as this like brute who doesn't think through things you know napoleon yeah. is not stupid the divorce is a yeah. political act he's trying he's very yeah. very invested in his image that's mm-hmm. why this, yes that's why most of you probably have seen images of napoleon mm-hmm. right Someone who's obsessed with his self-image isn't going around slapping women arbitrarily in public. Right. Yeah. Like the fact that it's in public, especially, right? Like that mm-hmm. also, like if it had been in private, I think it at least would have been believable. The fact yeah. that it was in public in that manner, it just, yeah, seemed like it seemed like a stupid thing to do because then everybody would be talking about it. And yeah, he doesn't, he was not stupid in that particular way. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to say Napoleon was not a brutal person, right? Someone who was at war that long, someone who reinstituted slavery in Haiti is not like someone mm-hmm. who has a clean conscience. But I think the way that we think, like just the way that people interacted with each other in mm-hmm. you know, supposedly polite society, there were certain rules for how to behave and Napoleon would have been very familiar with them. Right, right. And there's different kinds of brutality, right? I mean, the fact like most people, you know, in the 18th 19th century or for that matter honestly in the middle ages as well right like the way that you behave on the battlefield and the way that you treat people who are your social inferiors is not going to be the way that you treat people of your own social status in public settings yeah that's a really good point mm-hmm. like, there's, like there's social codes there's a lot of social yeah. codes um you know napoleon is not a high aristocrat but he was from a minor aristocracy in corsica Mm -hmm. you know he went to one of the best military schools in france he's someone who does have an education about how one Mm -hmm. is supposed to behave and that is i will also say i don't think the i'm not sure the film actually ever overtly says anything about napoleon's background but this is also 
I feel like he is coded as somebody who is much lower status in terms of his background than he actually is. Hmm. And this also strikes me very much as, as a trope, which like, which Ridley Scott in particular is actually like quite guilty of like he in kingdom of heaven, like takes a character who is aristocracy and makes him like an illegitimate blacksmith. Hmm. Like a real person. About Matt Damon in the last duel. Like, I don't know, Mm -hmm. you know more about that character, but there is a lot of that character, I think in this Mm -hmm. character. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't know. There are, there are, I mean, there are a lot of weird choices and like that, I think sometimes maybe is like designed to make a person seem like sort of more like relatable salt of the earth or like in this case, it might just be like trying to make him seem kind of more brutish. So there's a lot. Now that I think about it, Last Duel is sort of an interesting thing to think about because in some ways I think Napoleon is more Adam Driver's character with, Mm -hmm. you know, the rape of obviously as part of it, but off screen or off you know it's on screen but not Mm -hmm. kind of in the public space whereas the movie presents him as more as matt damon so i think there is this sort of juxtaposition of yeah it's for ridley scott and he picks kind of the blue rather than like sophisticated one for some reason right yeah and it's well I also just, yeah no and I I I, also, I mean I have a lot of thoughts about this movie mm-hmm. which I'm not going to like yeah. get into in detail but it also is like very much I don't know it also just very much all like highlights the extent to which like he is I think then again like far more interested in like in all of these cases and like the men's perspective than ever in like the women's perspective which I think he finds like fundamentally uninteresting and I think that is especially striking because Josephine in the film, even though she never seems to enjoy sex, even the slightest, but other than that, seems like she does have a point where she kind of transitions to liking Napoleon. And in terms of how the divorce is set up, that she seems almost like, you know, she's now like the flip side, like she's now at least like as into him as he is into her at this point. That transition, I don't understand exactly quite where it happened and it doesn't happen in a way that makes sense to me now is that something that's improved in his like four hour version director's cut maybe i don't know i haven't seen it but i'm kind of of the opinion where if this is supposed to be the emotional heart of your film and the relationship only makes sense in the four hour director's cut then you failed as a filmmaker yeah or i wonder is the four hour director's cut just like oh we're gonna talk about gaina you know there's a lot more battles that I mean, they wouldn't necessarily drive the plot, but like Gaiman's a pretty right. battle that's linear. Yeah. So, I mean, so who knows? As I said, I've not seen the four hour director's cut. Gonna be honest, not going to see the four hour mm-hmm. director's cut. Yeah. So, he invades Russia. Yeah. I actually thought that was done decently well. Yeah. I thought like the, like the burning of Moscow, I thought like was, was interesting. And that's true. Um, the fact that they the French are victorious on the battlefield, but then as they're retreating, um, yeah. you know, the winter comes and they don't have enough food and all of that. That's true. And the Grand Armée, the Grand yeah. Armée brings, and keep in mind, it's not just French people. I think the movie says this, that a lot of the soldiers are from places like Poland. They all sort of die. The thing that is wrong about this part, and this is the biggest historical inaccuracy that bugged me, is he comes back after the Russian campaign and they're like, you did a bad job in Russia, you must leave. That's not true. He fight. There is another battle between the Russian campaign and when he's exiled to Elba. It's called the Battle of Nations, the Battle of Leipzig. 
And obviously we didn't need another battle scene, but it's just inexplicable but that they would have been, you know, the leaders mm -hmm. of France would have sent him off after he lost the battle. In fact, the allies, the, the Russians, the Austrians, the, the Prussians, the British have basically pursued the French back into France and are literally mm -hmm. forcing the hand of the French to bring back the monarchy, right? That is why this yeah. kind of power happens. Yeah, um, but no, instead it's just like, well, you did a bad job at like this one military campaign, so bye. I mean, it was a pretty big disaster, but uh, nonetheless, yes. yeah, that to me was one of the like historical inaccuracies that yeah. really, really bugged me. Like you could just infer to it. Yeah. So he is exiled to Elba and decides to uh, come back and like take over again, uh, apparently solely because uh, he hears that Josephine is sick. Which she was dead at this point. So that is entirely right. Yeah. yeah, she she died like before he went into exile, right? Around the time. Yeah, she died in 18. Yeah. Yeah. So that's silly. He gets back, he manages to like charm a regiment into joining him instead of fighting against him. Which I think is supposed to be true. That's based on a real event. But this is actually also one of the the flaws that I think I one of the kind of issues that I had with the kind of depiction of Napoleon as a general is that that scene, the way it's played at least, feels like it presumes that the soldiers like Napoleon. Mm -hmm. And it felt, it didn't feel like it had any resonance to me because we'd never seen that before. We never, yeah. we actually have never seen him interacting with soldiers until that point, like with like regular soldiers who are not like other people who are like command. A hundred percent. And in fact, when one of my students was asking me, like, why was Napoleon so good? And I explained that he really worked very well with the ordinary soldiers. He gave them rations. Mm -hmm. He would use the informal you in French. And he said, oh, there's this one scene at the end. But so like, you know, again, we don't get that earlier on. We don't see that part of his military genius is he can think big, but he also at yeah. the individual level makes these connections. Right. And I guess we do have a like him, like, I don't know, letting the men like sleep a bit longer before the Battle of Austerlitz or something like that. Like, but we we don't see really like interactions until this point. And yeah. And so for me, like this scene, just like sort of in the context of the film, rang hollow because of that because like I didn't see anything up until that point that led me to buy into that event happening yeah I think that makes sense that's a fair question. yeah then we have the the battle of Waterloo Rupert Everett finally shows up yeah and he, the things he said just felt like they were things that Wellington was like somebody was sitting there writing things that Wellington was saying they just felt like people somebody repeating something from that period mm -hmm. yeah you had thoughts i know about like the depiction of the the battle of waterloo yeah i did think that was effective i think that was one of the things that i felt was effective about the movie i know some military historians have, have particular critiques about this but i do again on sort of the individual level i you know <laughs> if you look at these paintings from the period of the various battles you know, there's a lot of smoke. It's chaos. It's all these lines yeah. of men trying to manipulate mm -hmm. around. And I think that the Battle of Waterloo really does get down to the mm -hmm. level of the individual and gives you a sense of that. So I that I appreciated. Mm -hmm. I appreciated the way in which it kind of pivoted to the level of the generals and then went back down into the battle mm -hmm. a number of times. Yeah, yeah. The thing that I was also sort of wondering about is that 
Napoleon, like, going into the Battle of Waterloo, like, mostly... I felt like the film kind of made it seem like he lost because he was sullen about the fact that it was raining and he hadn't planned for that. Hmm. That, I, that particular detail, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you also have them being out, out manned. The Germans mm-hmm. show up, the Prussians show up at the end. But the implication in the film and is that they would have been able to kind of cut them off if they'd like marched out earlier, but they didn't because it was raining. Hmm. Yeah. The rain is a big, a big thing. The other thing they show in that is he's falling asleep. And in fact, at the end of his life, mm-hmm. Napoleon was narcoleptic. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, but I don't know the, the way they depicted the rain thing, at least like it kind of made him seem just sort of like petulant. Yeah. Which I mean, I feel like that's sort of the mood throughout. Yeah. So, so again, it just like seemed, it seemed like a very weird, again, depiction of mm-hmm. Napoleon. His little like meeting with Wellington, which I know did not happen, also seemed weird. Yeah. I also don't know why at this stage of the film, they introduced the like weird theme in the last like 15 to 20 minutes of like Napoleon's good with children. I'm trying to remember. Or like teenagers, right? That like there's this bit that like all of the like basically like, you know, 10 year like adolescent, like I don't know, like kind of like 10 to 14 year old boys who like work on the ship are all like obsessed with him. Right. When he's in exile. I do remember this. Yeah. I think that they're trying to show that he has this power to win over ordinary people. But again, right? Like we haven't seen that up to this point. Language barrier, you know, maybe these. Right. So it doesn't even really make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it does feel, it like the film is trying to convince me that he has charisma, but it didn't bother doing that until the last half hour. Right. And he's just, the way Joaquin Phoenix plays this character, he's not very charismatic. He doesn't talk right. a lot. There's a lot of scenes where there's very little dialogue. And then the dialogue that is spoken is very kind of, it's not very suave. It's not very sophisticated. Yeah. Like whatever combination, right, of acting and directorial choice it is, like this really is like, yeah, like the way Joaquin Phoenix plays his character, he has like, he never has any charisma. And so it's, as I said, like then like they try to through the, like in this latter portion of the film, they try to convince us through the way other people react to him that he must have charisma. Right. But we as the audience are not seeing the charisma even at that stage. No, no. Because he's still, yeah. And even weirder that like when he's on St. Helena, there's this like weird, he's like chatting with some like adolescent girls, Mm -hmm. uh, lies to them about history. Yeah. And then sort of just playing. Yeah. That's sort of the end of his life. He's writing his memoirs. He did write his Mm -hmm. memoirs at the end of his life. Yeah, and yeah, lies to them and says he burnt uh, burnt Moscow when, of course, the the Russians burnt Moscow themselves. Which honestly, like, seems I have thoughts about how that, like, which I'll talk about in a moment, about how that sort of like maps on to um, Ridley Scott's personal disregard for historical reality. But mm-hmm. that's a different story. Again, it's another scene where it's like kind of trying to imply that he's charming, but he's not actually playing it as charming. But we're no. supposed to think that he's charming because the teenage girls seem vaguely charmed. Yeah. Yeah, the whole thing is really strange. I mean, if you think about, you know, he's writing his memoirs, his memoirs become very important in the way that people write about him. A lot of mm-hmm. the events in the film are from the memoirs and he kind of mm-hmm. shapes the version of history 
we could think about it that but the, uh, yeah that's a very sophisticated reading that's not being offered to us right that moment and then he just like while sitting there writing his memoirs kind of keels over and dies why not why not and then we have the epilogue which lists the number of people uh totaling to three million ish who died in the wars which also seems sort of weird as a choice on the one hand sure acknowledge and emphasize the brutality on the other hand it's of course like ignoring all of the other you know forms of brutality right i mean like we're fundamentally not interested right for example in like the slave trade or anything like that no the spanish campaign no um yeah yeah, it's sort of a weird epilogue yeah it sort of emphasizes napoleon was a warrior france was at war as a result of napoleon that's a good thing to take from it but it didn't quite strike the right note at the end of the film yeah and it also the other thing that the other reason it felt like it didn't strike the right note to me and again this also i think has to do with the fact that like i don't think the like i don't think the film did this well I don't think it's always particularly clear in the film why any of these battles are actually happening. Mm. And that combined with this epilogue also like raises the important point that um, in most situations you, uh, you kind of can't have a war without there being two people and like two, uh, you know, at least two sides involved and like, you know, not to like excuse, like, you know, not to say like Napoleon wasn't like, very happy to go to war but also like they're not going to war exclusively because napoleon personally felt like going to war all the time no and this goes back to kind of the french revolution the reason why the rest of europe is at war is because the french revolution posed a risk to these monarchs right right? and if we kind of take away the french revolution then it's the crown heads of europe who are arbitrarily being punished by the french right but in fact they are Mm -hmm. themselves trying to put down this revolution and napoleon to them represents you know this new order right and we we get some hints at that but that was the but like it it didn't feel like it was particularly well developed and it felt like it was to the extent that it shows up it feels like it's established european monarchs being like mad at like this upstart claiming he has the same status as them and doesn't really get into though the like genuinely reactionary like we are anxious about our own people revolting and our own like autocratic authoritarian regimes being like challenged yeah so uh the next section generally is the vera et falso where we talk about what the film got right and wrong uh this is already something we've obviously touched on to some extent but is there anything else in particular that you wanted to uh make sure to highlight yeah so in addition to my longer critique about their their depiction of the french revolution and kind of napoleon's relation to it the other two things that they cut and i understand you can't keep everything but there are two things that i cut that really i think add more nuance to Napoleon's history. And one is Haiti, right? So during Mm -hmm. the French Revolution, the enslaved people in Haiti have a revolt and eventually they force the French Revolution to declare the end of slavery in Haiti. And Napoleon sends an army into uh, Haiti. It's not very successful, but he does attempt to reinstitute slavery. So if you're going to kind of think about the nuances of Napoleon, is he someone who, Mm -hmm. you know, creates legal codes? Or is he someone who's, you know, against some of the ideals of the French Revolution? That's a prime um, case. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. And the other is the Peninsular Campaign 
in Spain. And again, this would have to be like a long, whole other movie. But the attempt by Napoleon to take over Spain and put his brother in charge as a new king of Spain is a huge disaster. But it's also very brutal, but not in a traditional like battlefield brutality. Right. And so I think that Mm -hmm. also would add more um, nuance to this story. And it's also one of the things that's interesting, right? And so that, like, again, in terms of, like, nuance that's lacking, right, there's this brutality. So, like, on the other hand, my understanding is actually that, like, his, like, their attempt to, like, take over Spain is what actually is the final, like, thing that actually ends the Spanish Inquisition. Oh, interesting. Okay. That you would the Spanish historian would know And are not a modernist, but that is my understanding. Um, And then the other thing is, of course, that like as somebody who does Jewish history, like Napoleon is also a figure who uh, is uh, often is like in the like in the like very, very oversimplified like narratives that you see sometimes of like so and so is good for the Jews or bad for the Jews. And Napoleon is generally traditionally represented and understood as being good for the Jews because he is, you know, a kind of pretty important figure in both in, you know, in like, especially in like extending to areas that he takes over, right? Uh, Jewish emancipation, right? This is like, I like Napoleon, like, this is the end of like the ghettos in Italy. Right. So France, because it gets rid of the Catholic Church in the French Revolution, gets rid of these ideas that, you know, religion is a prerequisite for citizenship. And so yeah. Napoleon, in the areas he spreads in Italy, but also in Germany, he is yeah. given credit for emancipating the Jews. So again, kind of on this complicated legacy, you know, in terms of legal codes, in terms of the expansion of rights, mm-hmm. there are ways we can talk about Napoleon both spreading those, but then also not. And the kind of that history, the legal mm-hmm. history, perhaps. Legal history is not sexy, yeah. but it is interesting and complicated. It is interesting. I like legal history. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> so the other thing, so right, we have the like him firing on the pyramids as the like quick, like, look, Napoleon took Egypt. And, you know, as as I know, as somebody who's like not an expert, but has spent like some amount of time in Paris, like there's all of these like, Egyptian obelisks in mm-hmm. Paris, which like Napoleon brought those to Paris, correct? Right? I mean, you know, not like personally with his bare hands, right? But that's like why they're in Paris. A lot of and, those obelisks. yeah, yeah. And that is how that is what's highlighted on screen about that campaign. What's not highlighted is that, and again, from you know what I'm reading as a non-expert, is that like there's a lot of Ottoman soldiers that like under normal circumstances probably would have been taken prisoner that instead were like shot or driven into the sea. Hmm. That I didn't. And, and I actually think that that is striking that in reality, he is somebody who has more respect for Egyptian cultural heritage than for human lives of, you know, in particular of like a bunch of people who are not white and I also think that had that been depicted accurately, as opposed to then essentially showing the opposite, where we saw very little actually of the brutality of that campaign, but we did see the fire, the like imagined firing on the pyramids, that actually struck me as like precisely doing, like creating the opposite um, dynamic from reality in a way that but, bothered me. Yeah, there's a couple of really interesting things about the Egyptian campaign that in some ways support what you're saying and also complicate it. Um, mm-hmm. One is that Napoleon brings a bunch of scholars with him to Egypt um, mm-hmm. and they compile this multi-volume book about voyages in Egypt. And they're interested in the history. They're interested in the flora and fauna. 
So there is, again, this sort of enlightenment, right? Thinking about the enlightenment, mm-hmm. this thing in the 18th century that informs the French Revolution. This legacy is with him. He's taking these scholars. Um, but what they're really interested in is in the history of Egypt. They're very uninterested in the actual Egyptians, who they think of mm-hmm. as not the ancient Egyptians. Right. And so they, they're, the sort of academic pursuit is very separate. On the other hand, when Napoleon is in Egypt, he issues this proclama- these proclamations in a way that suggests he might be Islamic. Huh. Because he is That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He sort of talks about Muhammad. He does do things to try to win over the hmm. actual, the people who are in Egypt, Egypt in, you know, the early 19th century, late 18th century. And part of it is this French Revolution where you don't have to be Catholic anymore and you can mm-hmm. kind of be slippery and, and do what's strategic. But yeah, the expedition in Egypt, again, much more complicated. The diplomacy of that yeah. is something that really doesn't, I think, fit into our kind of standard mythos about mm-hmm. Napoleon. It's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah and, and again, speaks to the fact that like this film is intensely not interested in nuance. I also wanted to uh, share some of uh, Ridley Scott's personal comments in response to uh, critiques on historical mm-hmm. accuracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is that he just told historians to get a life. <laughs> he also was to responded specifically to French critics and said, the French don't even like themselves. <laughs> and then also had this like bizarre discussion of how he thinks history works. Napoleon dies, then 10 years later, someone writes a book, then someone takes that book and writes another. And so 400 years later, Mm. apparent, that's the number he used, there's a lot of imagination. When I have issues with historians, I ask, excuse me, mate, were you there? No, well, shut the fuck up then. This really highlights to me the extent to which Ridley Scott, A, has absolutely no idea how historians do history in a way that is uniquely frustrating as somebody who has decided that he is deeply invested in making historical films. Yeah. And I mean, obviously anybody making movies is going to take liberties, but there are ways that historians know what we know. I just referred to these documents Napoleon issued in Egypt. How do Mm -hmm. I know about this? Because I read translations of those documents how do i know about the napoleonic code because i've read the napoleonic code in french right it's not like echoes of memory we have primary sources there is a way in which we know what we're talking about yeah and that's what i find frustrating right is this on the one hand i i am understanding right of people who say things like you know we take liberties because like we can't include everything obviously and sometimes we have to oversimplify things and you know and i don't always like the choices that particular filmmakers make and specifically how they oversimplify things but there are things that at least right are understandable then choices and that's at least an understandable rationale to me that you have to make some cuts and you know some changes in order to make a you know comprehensive you know two-ish hour movie of course yeah but that comment really strikes me as him then saying that like well, historians really just made everything up. So I can also make everything up and then it all has equal validity. Yeah, and I think, I mean, people, a lot, the average person often learns about history through film and a lot of the assumptions they have about history and historical 
characters are through film and so that you know someone like him does have a responsibility yeah and I mean and that's exactly why I started this podcast because there are in particular a lot of ways in which people's incorrect ideas about the medieval past are informed and reinforced by films um mm. with you know our buddy Ridley being one of the uh mm. main uh offenders in that particular regard mm. but yeah, it just, as I said, I, I find really frustrating the fact that, like, not only does he think he has no responsibility whatsoever, that, like, as I said, he just, like, seems to have this, like, intense disregard and disrespect for, like, historians and, like, the work of understanding history in a meaningful way. Yeah. Which, yeah. To me, it's what, like, yeah. yeah. Historians don't own Napoleon, right? There's, you mm -hmm. know, but there are ways in which you can learn about Napoleon and find out about him. And there are a lot of films about Napoleon. Um, I have not seen, there's a movie from the 1920s by a French filmmaker named Abel Gans, like Abel Gans. Um, and I would be very interested in seeing that one um, and how mm -hmm. it deals with some of these topics. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also like, I don't know, in response to the like, get a life, like what, like it is also very much like insisting that like, this is like a more important task. And mm, Will it be seen by more people who will ever read an actual academic book about Napoleon? I am absolutely sure that's true. That, however, means, first of all, to me that like, yeah, that actually means you have a responsibility to think about the statement that you're making. And if the statement that you're making is both wrong and arguably problematic in a variety of ways, yeah. right? Like that's upsetting. And, like, actually, that's something that, like, we should care about. And I'll note also, like, right, I, when I care about inaccuracies, like, there are things that make me grumpy, but there are a lot of things that that don't just, like, make me grumpy because, like, it's wrong and it could have been right. And there are those things. <laughs> um, but there are also things where they make me grumpy because I think they, like, create narratives in ways that like bother me like the way Ridley Scott like deals with a series a number of events in the film Kingdom of Heaven essentially he takes a an episode which demonstrates a way in which a woman has agency and completely rewrites it to make it so that's the scene about how she completely lacks agency yeah and I think someone like Napoleon is really foundational to French identity the French mm -hmm. revolution is key to kind of modern French nationalism and so, you know, it does actually have significance. It's not just historians. It's, you know, part of the way the French see themselves. If people made a movie about the American Revolution that was incredibly inaccurate, people would be very angry, not just because it was inaccurate, but because it's also part of the, the stories that we tell ourselves. And we mm -hmm. want, a lot of us, you know, want those stories to be told in a nuanced, complicated way that helps us understand our identity as Americans and for the French to help them understand their identity as French. Yeah. Yeah, so all very frustrating that he made this series of choices. Uh, he also, by the way, commented uh, that it would be about fucking time if he got an Oscar for uh, for this movie. I guess he's a uh, gladiator, sadly, won Best Picture, uh, but he has never, I believe, won Best Director. And, uh, well, I will say I actually don't think this is an especially well-directed film, so uh, hopefully he won't. Yeah, and in fact, another historical <laughs> film, which I think is a lot more complicated and uh, has been critiqued, but for different reasons, 
Um, Killers of the Flower Moon, I think that's a much mm -hmm. more chance. And that is a movie that I've read some really interesting critiques about it, but I do think took mm -hmm. great pains to kind of engage with the history and engage with the local people who, whose stories were being told to kind of make sure mm -hmm. the story being represented was closer to that. Yeah. 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 And again, I think that's where it kind of falls for me is that it's not necessarily that I'm demanding like precise faithfulness. I like films better if they show that the person has some genuine interest in the real history as opposed to in whatever bullshit they feel like making up. And that's usually not the vibe I get. That's not the vibe I get from this movie. And it's not the vibe I get from like Ridley Scott in general. Yeah. Historia et veritas. So at this point, uh, the the next segment typically is the uh, the Historia et Veritas. Uh, this is something we've, again, already kind of touched on, but uh, I was thinking this would also be a good space if there's, like, anything else that you, like, really wish people knew about Napoleon or about, like, new scholarship coming out about Napoleon or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I think the way in which people are re-looking at the French Revolution is very much putting it in a larger history of the, large, the Atlantic world. And so when we think about France, we're not just thinking about France as a country, but thinking about France in terms of um, the larger space of Europe, but also North America, Africa, and South America. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the really exciting work in French history is thinking about, you know, France, the French Revolution doesn't just happen because of events in France. It happens because things that are happening in the Caribbean. It happens because of smuggling mm -hmm. that's happening in the Atlantic Ocean. And the repercussions for Napoleon are not just happening in France, they're also happening in the Caribbean, they're happening in the Atlantic world. So I think some of the most exciting work that's coming out about that, as I said, is about Haiti. Marlene Doubt, who um, is, a, is a historian and a scholar of French studies, who's at the University of Virginia, is doing really exciting work. And if you want to kind of think about this in a critical way, she wrote an editorial about Napoleon a couple of years ago in the New York Times, when France was doing kind of a year of Napoleon and anniversary of in 2021, it was the bicentennial of his death, um, really kind of putting Napoleon within this larger history of race and of Haiti. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a little disappointed that the New York Times kind of didn't choose to engage with that at this mm -hmm. moment. Some of the editorials they published, I, I felt didn't engage with some of those themes. Um, and we're yeah. kind of using this movie to engage some things that maybe weren't as interesting to me. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 No, and I... Again, I think it would be it would be really interesting to get something that, uh, you know, dealt with, right, that some of those kind of complexities um, of like history and like not just like Napoleon, because honestly, I also am kind of like, I don't know, I don't know how to know how many more like movies about a single like important man we need as opposed to like, I don't know, movies about like, I don't know what's going on in Haiti in the you know early 19th century, but yeah, we can zoom out a little more. And if we zoom out a little more, we find out that there's a lot happening. There's a lot of people mm -hmm. who are claiming rights in the late 18th, early 20th, 19th century. Mm -hmm. And the ways they're claiming rights, right? It's part of the, what is happening with Napoleon and the way that I was talking about kind of nuance. But it's in a lot of different places. And I think thinking about the way that story is woven together is really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And also is, I think, helpful in understanding Bridgerton, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like take another, <laughs> like, Bridgerton is also about a period that's not so long after this. If anything, mm -hmm. it's kind of set in the Regency period, which the Regency yeah. overlaps with the Napoleonic period. Um, mm -hmm. And if we think about race and identity in this period, it, it, it may be complicated the way that we read Bridgerton. Mm -hmm. um, so I think taking some time to think about that will also help 
shine new light on Bridgerton as well. So I encourage mm -hmm. people to, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Fabula Nostra. So that all actually kind of leads into the uh, the Fabula Nostra, the segment where uh, we come up with ideas for a film or show or some other piece of media that we'd like to see in the world in addition to or instead of uh, yeah. what we have spent three hours almost of our lives watching. Oh. Um, it is a long movie. And also, again... The fact that there's a director's cut that's even longer, like, I've got to say, like, my kind of opinion, I will say in general about these director's cuts in general, is that I think they're self-indulgent. Like, I mean, okay, on the one hand, like, I understand director's cuts that are situations in which, like, the studio pushed for certain things and you felt like your vision of the movie didn't come out the way you wanted, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. I think <laughs> if you cannot, like, if you are a filmmaker, I think you are committing to tell a story in an amount of time that is um, not completely unreasonable to expect people to sit in a theater. And so I think if you are not able to like do your job and tell the story in approximately three hours and need a like four hour version or something, like, I just think that's like indulgent and ridiculous and it shows you haven't done your job effectively. I mean, our attention spans are limited. You know, a movie yeah. is a particular genre. It is and it's not a TV show. It's something that's yeah. capturing something in a very short span of time. And, yeah. you know, good writing captures that art mm -hmm. in that of time. Yeah. No, either. Yeah. That's, that is my opinion about, like, the director's cuts that are just, like, the movie but longer. Is that, like, uh, either either figure out how to make a good movie in the amount of time that you have or give up and, like, start making TV shows. Mm -hmm. um, you're two options. I mean, Titanic was two VHSs. So if you yeah. get in Titanic, like, and that was what, three hours? I think probably. Um, Titanic, Titanic, that right, right. And, you know, and, and I will say, I mean, and my one exception to this, of course, is like the Lord of the Rings extended versions, <laughs> which I just like absolutely think like those are just like the better versions of the movies and like, it's too bad that like one couldn't really like theatrically release four hour, like three, four hour movies. And those actually are, are each two, two DVDs per movie. Oh man. That's even longer. So, yeah. So much, so much. Yeah. yeah. What, uh, what would you like to see in the world in addition to, or instead of this? Yeah. So going back to something we talked about quite a bit earlier, I'm very interested in the Dumas family. I've gotten very mm -hmm. interested in reading some of the Alexandre Dumas books that are less known. And I would love to know more about his dad, who, as we mm -hmm. said, has a very minor speaking role. And I think, again, sort of complicates how we think about the French Revolution. Um, another person who is due for a movie is Toussaint L'Ouverture, the head of the Haitian Revolution. Uh -huh. um, both of those people, I think, would be really interesting figures you know if we're going to make a kind of movie about a man right. of the time that might tell us a different story about this particular period in time yeah i actually i could see again if we're having like at least a movie that's focused on basically one important person yeah. i actually like i'm not sure about it as a movie as opposed to like a you know six episode miniseries but i actually think like something about josephine like i actually think mm. like she's a fairly interesting figure right and like I think like culturally she's interesting because she is, she's, I believe was like born in the Caribbean, right? She was born in Martinique. And there were rumors yeah. about, you know, was Josephine mixed race? I don't think she right. was, 
but everybody mm-hmm. who was from the Caribbean, um, there are kind of these like rumors about them. Right. And so I think also like, I think that her story could also like illuminate a lot of sort of other kind of cultural and racial and like region, like other like dynamics in terms of like the, the sort of like French empire. And I think, yeah, that, that would be really interesting would be to have the kind of like six episode miniseries on Josephine that like doesn't exclusively focus on her relationship with Napoleon. Right. Cause there's this whole prehistory, her first marriage, her kid, her mm-hmm. kids, like, you know, even at the end, her daughter shows up and you don't realize it's her daughter and not just another maid. Um, her daughter was married to Napoleon's brother. And I think is the mother of Napoleon the third, right? Her whole yes. Kid, yeah. I actually hadn't known that until I was like Googling stuff in relation mm-hmm. to this movie. I sort of assumed Napoleon the third was descended from Napoleon. Um, <laughs> nope. Yeah. But he is descended from Josephine. Yeah. Um, no, Napoleon's son, Napoleon II, is the Prince of Rome, and he kind of just dies in exile with his yeah. mother, um, and he's buried in Envalide. If people are interested right. in learning more about Napoleon, Envalide, Invalid, is the uh, resting place of Napoleon. It's in Paris. It's in the, uh, this beautiful gold dome building. Um, so if you go to Paris and you want to see Napoleon's final resting place, I highly recommend, and you get kind of Napoleon's version of himself. But even right. Napoleon's version of himself is more complicated and nuanced than this film. Yeah. It is a very intense and very large building. Um, what is the the his actually? What is the history of like of that? Because like I mean, in terms of like that he died in exile. Like when was he actually like was he buried at Avalid right away, or was that later that he was brought there? I believe it's later. Um, yeah, he died in eighteen twenty one, which is during the Restoration, right in there. The Restoration. Yeah. This is the brothers of the king who was killed in the French Revolution. They're not a big fan. I'm one. I'm trying to remember if it's when his nephew becomes emperor i couldn't tell you exactly but that building predates napoleon it's an army um hospital for oh. yeah okay okay so the building was and had he requested to be buried there i believe so i believe that he designed okay. his own tomb okay again no, that would actually not be. an idiot someone who designed no their own tomb. yeah like, yeah yeah no yeah also, again, like, I don't know, maybe kind of like a missed opportunity in terms of like that we have like, you know, him like firing on the pyramids uh, and not like, you know, but not like talking about the pyramids at all, which are in fact like tombs that rulers designed for themselves. Yeah, that's a really good point. He, well, he does go in and look at the mummy, but yeah, we don't have sort of like carrying yeah. the spirit. That would be really an interesting way to end that movie instead of having the flashing, have the tomb of Napoleon and kind of zoom around and like, yeah, show. yeah. Yeah, I think that would be and like, I, I think there actually could I will just also say like, I don't know, I don't necessarily think like I personally need another movie about Napoleon. But if there was one, I actually think it could be interesting to have one that like is maybe a sort of like more, I guess, kind of like unreliable narrator e like focusing on how Napoleon saw himself. Yeah, I think that would be much more interesting. It might also be, you know, the movie Lincoln, I always, I'm sort of like, why did they pick this mm-hmm. one particular week or whatever? Like, they could have picked any week. Yeah. But I do think that movie works because it is like, let's just focus in on a moment in time and use that to unspool mm-hmm. the dynamic around this particular figure. Yeah, and I think something like that also would have solved some of the the problems of this film in terms of the fact that, like, the insistence on doing like 30 years of history is hard like it's hard to do 30 years of history well in even a almost three hour movie yeah right and so like I 
I think it probably would have been better if it like hadn't done that, if it had like maybe chosen a sort of more, a sort of narrower moment to focus on. Yeah, I think that could have been very interesting. Yeah. So at this point, we have the estimatio or rating, where we rate the film on a scale from one to five based on whatever subjective criteria we see fit. I'm going with a one out of five. I just, I just fundamentally, I just do not like Ridley Scott. I don't like him as a director in general. I think he kind of hates women. Um, I think he, his like disregard for history is very frustrating to me. And I think all of those things are on display in this film. So while I don't hate it as much as many other Ridley Scott films that I've seen, did not like this. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all your critiques. I think I would go with a two out of five just because I did, Mm -hmm. like, the movies that I really hated, I wanted to stop watching, and I did want to see this event. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, like, so boring that it was unpleasant, but I do think it was not one of the better historical movies I've ever seen. I also Mm -hmm. have, like, more of an attachment to Napoleon than you do, so maybe that overrides some of this. Yeah, I I also will say, like, I was definitely getting bored, but, like, A, I don't have as much of, I would say, like, an attachment to Napoleon, but also, I don't know, as I said, like, I, movies that are, like, like, largely, like, battle after battle after battle, I, I see the points, right, about the ways in which some of the battles are depicted well, and I think that's, of course, like, very valid, but it's just not... Like, I found myself kind of getting bored during some of the extended battle sequences. I definitely found myself at various points being, like, looking at my watch, like, trying to look at my watch mm-hmm. in the theater, being, like, when we were, like, in the Battle of Waterloo, being, like, how much more is there going to be? I would agree with that. By that point, I was checking my watch. Um, yeah. Because your um, body also knows, like, about what is two hours. And once it goes over two hours, you're just like, this is Yeah. Yeah. This also, I think, like, might win my personal award for, like, least appealing consensual sex scenes. Oh, man. Ever covered on this podcast. Mm. So, like, you know, emphasis on consensual, obviously. Mm. Um, I I wouldn't say she's, like, happier enjoying it, but I think technically, I I would say technically consents, I guess. Um, Very awkward. Very, very awkward. Yeah, just so unpleasant and unappealing. And I just, I, I still don't understand why that choice was made. And yeah, and again, I guess like, a, as again, as a directorial flaw, I feel like this movie fundamentally cannot decide if it's celebrating or mocking Napoleon. And in yeah. a way that doesn't feel nuanced, it feels disconnected. And there's such a good, like, as I said, there's such a good question to engage with, like, is Napoleon power hungry and willing to kind of reestablish a monarchy? Or is he kind of invested in deconstructing existing power structures? That's Mm -hmm. already made problematic, problematic. This film does not choose to pick it up. No, no. So Miranda, thank you so much for joining me for this. Are there places where the listeners can find you on the internet? Yeah, I mean, um, if you look at my faculty page, you know, it's Miranda Sachs, S-A-C-H-S. I do have a Twitter. I'm not using it very much anymore. Um, And then I'm also on Blue Sky. So people are on that platform. They can find me there just under my name, Miranda.Sachs. Excellent. 
So if you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter slash X for the time being at Media Evil Pod and join the Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Miranda, done for uh, being the uh, guest expert on Napoleon. Thanks. I always love talking about this period. So this has been a treat. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And uh, and also meant like I didn't have to do as much work because you got to do most of the research, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. which is also always nice. <laughs> but yeah, so thank you. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. All right, have a good day. Bye. Shall we vote? This vermin has held the world hostage with his egotism and his lack of simple good manners. Majesty, we are discovered. Good.